Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm Charlene Chang, the co-host of this podcast, and I'm thrilled to say that our special guest today is none other than Steve Phillips himself. Today's episode is the third in a four-part series focused on the themes of Steve's new book, How We Win the Civil War, which comes out, folks, on October 18th. Mark your calendars. I just wanted to give a little background in terms of how I met Steve. I was first introduced to Steve in 2014 by Elmas Abinader. She's the co-founder of an amazing organization called Voices of Our Nation Arts Foundation. It's a national network of writers of color. And I was referred to her by her friend, Amy Allison. Uh, many of you may know Amy Allison is the founder of She the People, and she used to be president of Democracy in Color. Amy was working with Steve also at that time, and she had really been encouraging Steve to write a book because she realized that his perspectives on what was happening in our country around politics and race were just, there was nobody writing about that at the time. And there was nobody saying what he was saying. Um, and there was nobody who had the analysis that he had, namely how the demographic shifts in our country were impacting politics. So Amy reached out to Elmas, knowing that Elmas knows a lot of writers, and Elmas re uh, reached out to me. I had been involved in the organization for a long time. Elmas said, there's this guy, he's brilliant, he's got a book in him, uh, he has to get his book out, but he needs somebody to help him on this book project, someone to be kind of like his editor or book coach. And Elmas knew I, I was a journalist in my first lifetime, as I say, um, uh, I'm a writer and editor by trade. But what Elmas maybe didn't know or, you know, she didn't really ask me about that time was that I didn't really have either a background in politics and I didn't actually quite have that much interest in electoral politics, to tell you the truth. But she's just encouraged me to meet up with Steve. So Steve and I met for the first time in Berkeley by where I live at one of what used to be my favorite. I used to call it like my pr private, not so private office. It was called the Imperial Tea Court. It was this lovely Chinese tea house near where I live. And, you know, it, it shut down um, recently. I think pandemic kind of hit it hard. So RIP, Imperial Tea Court. And I sat down with Steve. And the first thing I said is I said, listen, I've never written a book. I've never been a book coach. I'm not that into politics. I don't know if I'm really the person for you. But uh, I, I remember Steve saying, you know what, I've never written a book. And I like that you don't have specific political experience, but I do like that you have journalistic and edit, you know, an editor's experience. So let's try this and let's do it together. And if and if it doesn't work out, doesn't work out. And if it does, great. Two years later, Brown is the New White, his first book came out. It became a New York Times bestseller. He went on to found Democracy in Color, went on to national TV and uh, elevated his sort of impact and uh, reach in terms of a national thought leader in politics. So I will say it definitely worked out. And that is the short story of how we met. So, Steve, let me know is that is that also how you remember it? Because those are all the like the parts of our story that stand up out to me when I think about when we first met. Well, first, I just want to congratulate the podcast booking team for being able to get such an amazing guest for today's podcast that uh, I hear he's wonderful. His mother has said that he's brilliant. And so I think uh, you guys are very lucky to have today's guest. So. Yes. And thank you for making the time. We know your schedule is very busy, especially now that you're coming out with your new book. And so we had to really work hard on your schedule. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, 
turn the turn the microphone and 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 have this conversation. Now this this is so great. I I've been wanting to do this actually probably since the beginning of us the two of us doing this podcast. I've been like I really want to just interview Steve, and now organically there's perfect timing and reason. Speaking of that, I never want to assume that anyone who is listening isn't listening for the first time. So for those who might be listening for the first time, I wanted to give a little bit of background on who Steve is. Steve is a national political leader. He's a best-selling author and columnist. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brown is the New White, as I mentioned, and the forthcoming book, How We Win the Civil War. Steve is a columnist for The Guardian and The Nation and contributes to other publications. He's also, as I mentioned, usually the host of this podcast, He's founder of Democracy in Color, which is a political media organization dedicated to race, politics, and the multicultural progressive new American majority. Pre-pandemic, you could often find him at a local Phil's coffee shop in San Francisco working on his book manuscripts or articles. But these days, he's often found in his home office enjoying a delivery from Chipotle that may or may not include the correct order of chips and salsa, much to his chagrin. (laughs) Welcome, Steve. Well, actually, it's I still have Phil's coffee every day, but it's oh. deli- delivered. Ah. So, um, what was the somebody that had a? I don't know if they actually had a sign on their door during the pandemic and the uh, during the height of the pandemic saying, "Don't do not ring this doorbell unless I married you, birthed you, or ordered food from you." And so, I have kept the Phil's tradition alive. But that was a whole interesting thing about trying to create a structure and a ritual in the context of writing a book and in the context, obviously, of a global pandemic. So that was. An important element of that, actually. Let me ask you real quickly: How does it feel so far to be on your own show? <laughs> well, it's it's a different kind of preparation than the uh, making sure I'm going to be able to to do all the questions and whatnot. It's kind of fascinating. The you know you're often in your own head so much, and so it's like it's it's you know intriguing, amusing around what parts of this story are interesting to other people. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so am I. So let's get into it. First, first question's got to be, inquiring minds want to know, why did you write this book? Why now? And why title it How We Win the Civil War? Well, it's, in some ways, it's a, um, I mean, it's, you know, remember, it's, so Mark Favreau is our editor at The New Press, which has been, you know, a great partner on this journey as well. Um, and so they published the first book, Brown is the New White. And that one I did because I was quite, a lot. Well, it just seems so obvious to me that Obama had won because of the extension of the civil rights movement. And, you know, as, as, uh, would maybe a drinking game now, my mentions of Jesse Jackson, but that was a formative experience, but it was an illuminating experience in that he increased his vote from three and a half million to seven million people from 84 to 88, brought all these people of color into the process, expanded the electorate, showed the potential. And so, it was just very clear that when Obama won, you had a continuation of that movement, this, you know, small R, small C rainbow coalition of people of color, progressive whites, just used to say when the old minorities come together, they're a new, new majority. And so it, I just thought it was a given, but people did not understand that. And there was all this, you know, reverting to the traditional form of politics was trying to court swing, uh, white swing voters. And so I wanted to make the case, and that was why I wrote Brown is the New White, is to really explain that Obama's election and re-election um, was an extension of that. And so when Mark came to us uh, around writing, do we want to write a second book? It was, it was the March or April of 2020, 
And I was like, well, yeah, let's use the Civil War as a metaphor. And then like, you know, seven, eight months later, people stormed the U.S. Capitol carrying the Confederate flag, chanting racist slurs and whatnot. So fundamentally, I think it's to understand the the severity and the intensity of uh, what elected Trump, the forces behind him, the level of attacks and fight that we were in. I think people were still not understanding the severity of it and seeing it more as just part of the normal give and take of politics where it's not that at all. And so I really wanted to ring the alarm bell around the severity of the intent of, of the fight that we're facing. And so that's why I titled it How We Win the Civil War. And then the second part being about the um, how we actually win and looking at the places where we where we we've been winning. I remember actually when you did go back to Mark and said, this is the framing that I'm thinking is something around the fact that the civil war never ended and that we are in a civil war. And again, this was in early 2020. And I'll admit, even I kind of went, ooh, that feels a little bit, that has a certain charge to it. It feels a little bit extreme to me at the time that I just wasn't so sure about that phrasing, like we are in a civil war. But now it's like you like you said, since especially January 6th, but throughout this year, if you Google civil war, far more articles come up about our current politics than the original civil war in terms of, you know, on Google, the right. top no, hits. The January 6th insurrectionists had actual sweatshirts, MAGA civil war, January 6th, yeah. 2021. Yeah. Speaking of history, I wanted to give listeners a little insight to your personal history a little bit more. One of the things I love about what I learned in your first book, Brown is the New White, is a, a little bit more about your own childhood and how you grew up. You had written about and, and you've talked about in the past how you grew up in Ohio in the 60s and 70s and how your parents were only able to obtain a home in a certain neighborhood with better schools because a white friend of theirs offered to purchase it for them first. And that I'm assuming it was because it was nearly impossible at the time for African-Americans, not only often to get loans, but to get loans and to purchase homes in certain neighborhoods. And I love that story. Be and I love the way you tell it because it gives me insight into not only you and your family, but it represents something about American history and that time. What were some of the influences from your childhood that have inspired you to take this particular life path of work in the area of racial social justice and politics and activism and for you to continue to be a vocal champion for multiracial democracy, you're often the only voice in the room. Not only often you're the only person of color in the room, but even in democratic and even progressive politics, you're often the only one saying what you're saying. And 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 specifically, let's say in this current era, this current year or past few years, that you're one of the few people specifically calling out whiteness in saying that that's what the main thing that we're up against including in politics in America. Yeah, no, I am I am quite literally a child of the civil rights movement, right? I mean, I was born in 1964. That story that you talk about, we moved in 64 to our home on, you know, 2637 Dartmoor Road in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, and the, they would not sell the house to my parents because they were black. And so they'd get a white lawyer, Byron Krantz, who's a, a civil rights and fair housing lawyer, to buy the house and then deed it over to our parents you know, my mom slept in her clothes when we first because she was afraid of the house being firebombed. They had a meeting across the street of some of the neighbors to talk about 
And what my dad like crashed the meeting, which I didn't even know he had, he was that. <laughs> and he didn't like, you know, confront them, but he went to the meeting. Then someone was saying, what are we going to do with Byron Kranz, the man who, who mm. sold the house? String him up. Mm. So my, actually, my dad told me that story. Wow. Election night 2012, when Obama won re-election. Oh, wow. When we were at dinner with my father-in-law, where my dad was trying to show my father-in-law how to use Facebook, and my father-in-law had no interest in it. <laughs> so there was that piece. So... Uh, the, the the whole fair housing movement, the civil rights movement was very much in my DNA from an early stage. One of my earliest memories is my father took me to see Martin Luther King when he came to Cleveland in 1967. And I read every single biography of Martin Luther King in elementary school library. So I had that dimension. And then my grandfather was a minister, Glenville Church of God, Reverend A.R. Cochran. And that whole, and it's funny, the different things asked, my mom always wanted to get to church to hear the singing and the choir and the music. I wanted to hear the sermon, like the words, the preaching, you know, the, the, yeah. and so that was very much part of my tradition as well. And I always have loved politics. And so like, I think like some people love gardening. I love politics. I got talked on a prior podcast about our next door neighbor, Art uh, Brooks ran for state legislature when I was eight years old. I remember going to the victory party next door. So those are like a lot of the streams. And so that is, in fact, why I feel that the 84 presidential campaign and Jesse Jackson in particular and that vehicle were so resonant for me at that point in time. You know, 20-year-old black man in this country having a direct tie to the civil rights movement, somebody who had been there with Martin Luther King, having a political campaign and the audacity of that campaign, which has been an inspiration to me in terms of the boldness of it, bold leadership, new direction, and wrapping it all in religious metaphor, spoke to me very, very, very deeply. Right now, one of the first times I ever heard Jesse speak was in 1984 in East Palo Alto, and the election was on June 5th. And he concluded with this whole analogy and this metaphor around that the movement had been through crucifixion. And that King's assassination in 68 and Robert Kane's assassination, that was crucifixion. Their blood mm -hmm. ran, our tears flowed, but some waited upon the Lord and they re renewed their strength like eagles. 68 was the crucifixion. You shall come alive June 5, it's resurrection. So he was able wow. to tie all of that together in ways that almost 40 years, 40 plus years later still resonate with me. But that's what set me on the path to see how all those things could be injected into the U.S. politics, continue the civil rights movement, continue the struggle for justice, and do that in the political sphere. Speaking of movement and justice, you write in your intro to How We Win the Civil War that this book, your new book, is a love letter to the folks who have done the work, who are doing the work, and want to do the work. What did you mean by that? At this stage of the game, I've done all sides of this work in terms of social change in politics. I, I have been a candidate and an elected official. I ran for one uh, school board in San Francisco, ran for and lost the state legislature in uh, 2002. I've been a donor to a lot, a lot, a lot of campaigns. Um, every, almost literally every other text or call I get is from a candidate asking for money. And I've been an organizer who's done the work organizing precinct uh, walks, contacting voters, turning up voters and getting them to the polls, et cetera. The organizer work is the most important and it's the hardest, but it's the least appreciated as well. And so somebody had asked me, you know, what I was excited about, about the book. And I was said that people of color period were always like uh, patronized 
in terms of man, and uh, plays itself out in politics as well. It's like, yeah, 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 the people of color stuff, that's important, but we have to win. So we have to do this other stuff over here and downplay people of color stuff. But I'm like, no, we're winning. The places where we are actually winning, Georgia, Arizona, nine out of 10 elections in, in, in Virginia, flipping the Harris County government in, in Texas, but Harris County is bigger than many of the states within this country, flipping the entire county, San Diego, California, which is bigger than many states in this country. That's the winning. But we're not listening to those people. We're not doing that work, right? And so... You know, you know then that, and I try to feature those folks in the book, right? You know, Tram Wynn, Tomas Robles, Alejandro Gomez, Andrea Guerrero, um, Michelle Tremillo, um, J.D. Goldman. That were, these are the leaders. So not only are they incredible leaders, but they're also amazing entrepreneurs who started organizations from scratch and built them up into multi-million dollar powerhouses that are flipping these different areas. But it's still not respected. I mean, Stacey Abrams isn't even still respected to the extent that she should be, given the, the enormity of the, the uh, impact she's had on this country's politics by doing the work to flip Georgia, to flip the whole United States Congress. And so I wanted both for the world to know that this is, in fact, how we win. But I also wanted these leaders and these organizers to know that I see them and that I appreciate them and I value and recognize. And so it is a love letter to those particular people, but to everybody who's doing that kind of work. And there are lots of people doing that kind of work, but it's very unappreciated in our society, which is the height of irony, because it is in fact, the very most important thing we need to do to change this country in our direction. Okay, so speaking about the book, I wanna just dive in more and just ask you, what are the main central messages and arguments of how we win the civil war? So we touched on it a little bit, but just to, to, to crystallize it. So there's two parts of the book. Well, there were going to be three, but I took, I, I, it was too long. <laughs> I had to stop. The third was going to, originally the title was going to be after we win the Civil War. And I remember that. I don't know how much I had shared that, but that was going to be the title. No, it was going to be. I was going to say, you're just telling me that the, the book, you know, your book coach now. I it was going to be called I, Once We Win the Civil War. I have a file on my computer called Once We Win the I Civil War. Another book. Well, yeah, I got, you know, that was going to be like the policy agenda and the vision for what we could actually do. So I, that is, in essence, what the epilogue of the book is. I try to, you know, tease out what that could look like. But it it took a lot to make these two points. And it's it kind of to your original remarks about the, the visceral reaction, like, oh, civil war, that's very, um, you know, provocative, et cetera. And it's uncomfortable for people. Mm-hmm. And so the, I had to explain in incontrovertible fashion that the Confederates have never stopped fighting the Civil War. And to really understand the severity of the attacks that we are under and to contextualize them by showing the through line from the Civil War itself all the way up through the current Supreme Court dis- uh, disregarding you know, decades of settled decision-making and trying to undo all these changes. There's a lot of dismay because there's a lot of surprise that, well, how could this be happening in, a, in our country? How could this be happening in democracy? But if you actually understand that they used to, on the regular, round up people, take them out and hang them from trees. Civil rights activists, uh, Shorner, Goodman, and Cheney in Mississippi in 1964, when we were trying to bring democracy to Mississippi, were murdered, and nobody in Mississippi who had a, a position of authority would investigate. 
they had to have the federal government come in and investigate to actually then find their bodies. And then they couldn't even prosecute the people who killed them for decades. And again, that was another piece. And then you have when Ronald Reagan ran for office in uh, 1980, he went to where Schwerner, Goodman and Cheney were killed and kicked off his campaign. Mm. And so when you more appreciate the intensity of those fights, then we'll be disabused of the idea that we're all operating from the same set of rules, the same social contract. And if they would, we could just get them to listen to reason. They don't care about reason. They are, they went to war and killed hundreds of thousands of other Americans because they wanted to keep this a white country. And so I really wanted to drive that message home to contextualize this moment. And so that we would see that the true ferocity and nature of the fight that we're facing and, 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 and gird ourselves for that battle. And then the second part is how we win. Like some of my friends put on Facebook, I hope it's a hopeful book. And then my wife Susan <laughs> said it's uh, intense. And the first part is very intense. And I, that, I, you know, as, as a black man in America trying to recount those stories, I felt kind of an obligation actually to bring home that history in ways that would resonate. But as I said before, we are in fact winning. Right. We had a white nationalist in the White House and we ousted him. And then we flipped the entire United States Congress because the man who preaches from where Martin Luther King preaches won an election in the U.S. Senate. And then we were able to do a, a whole very significant that we passed the first climate law ever, basically, in this country because of all of that work. But somewhat similar to the Brown is the New White period. We're not looking to the leaders and the organizations learning the lessons of the places where we are winning. And so that's the second half of the book, is to really try to make that point crystal clear. And that, that's what and you had encouraged me to brand the, the strategies um, and the, so what we call a liberation battle plan. That's right. And so that is the way that we go about winning, but it's not conventional wisdom. And so that's why it was important to tell that part of the story. Yeah, I love, I love, I mean, I, I love the whole book and it is so powerful, the history that you lay out, uh, but I love, I'm going to low key plug the book some more, which is that I think the second half of the book for me, what I really love about it is the storytelling of the people today, including arguably a lot of young people, a lot of people, you know, a lot of them are younger than us, if not, if not, maybe all of them, but um, the incredible stories of how, different leaders in the progressive movement, um, progressive political sphere, how they have year upon year built up to these recent wins. And you just break it down, you make it really clear. And you also tell in such a moving way, personalized way, their personal stories, their family stories. And it just humanizes them. It makes you realize each one of these people could be ourselves, could be a friend. You know, these are just regular people who very dedicated and have been able to create and influence sort of our democracy in such right. positive ways. Yeah. So. And I want, and that point, I want to actually I, I make sure I, I give the shout outs to a uh, week a word, um, the, the appreciation to my wife, Susan, like obviously it's not only the, you know, been my greatest partner and cheerleader, but she's a voracious reader. And so Susan reads like, book a week, sometimes two books a week on the regular. She'll wow. Like, and then she'll be like, I finished my book, right? And so um, I'll try to scramble to get other recommendations. That, so she has 
really drilled home in me the importance of stories to be able to communicate. And so not just telling, but showing and being able to have things be more accessible. So the extent, so for every part of the book, I've tried to find and illuminate and tell a story from the history parts through the, the stories of the leaders in the book. We're talking about, you know, Tram Wynn and Virginia's parents uh, who, who were you know, refugees from Vietnam, but the amount of credible determination and courage to, you know, flee in a, in a boat, to flee from a, a prison camp in Vietnam and then be able to get. So I think that lends a level of engagement, intensity, accessibility, et cetera. But that really is from uh, that framing and that focus is really a direct result of how Susan has helped me to become a better writer and storyteller. Great advice. Thank you, Susan. It definitely comes through in uh, the book, the history part, a bunch of great, amazing stories that you lay out with the leaders. What are you hoping will happen uh, once the book is out? Again, the book comes out on October 18th. What do you? What is your deepest wish in terms of the result and impact of the book in the world, namely on politics in this country, on our democracy? I hope we will start doing what we need to do to win. And so that means looking to learning from and following the leadership of the people in the places who are winning. And it means understanding those strategies, embracing those strategies moving forward. And so it is fundamentally the shifting progressive politics and policy, because policy is an important part of politics as it inspires people. One of the things that was quite surprising in a good way was the Biden decision to go bigger on the student debt relief. And the reason they wanted to do that, they knew they needed to send a message to young people and people of color and to inspire them. So that's a critical part of it. And so the question is, who are we focused on and what are we focused on? And so are we in fact trying to address justice and equality and moving this country towards being a more fair, just, and equal multiracial democracy? And then are we backing the people leading those fights? And then are we moving the resources towards those people? So hundreds, well, actually, it's actually literally billions of dollars get moved into politics every cycle. But the people who are doing the best, most important work always have to fight and scratch and claw to get funded. So I, one of the part of Liberation Battle Plan is strong civic engagement organizations. Those organizations are always hand to mouth, trying to get some resources. They've been built up to organizations that are effective, but they should, they should have literally 10 times as much money as they have. Those that have three million should have $30 million. We could easily, well, I say easily, we could definitely flip Texas the way that Georgia and Arizona have begun to move and flip. If we invested the right amounts of money, the right scale, if we had community organizers all over the state, organizations like Top had $30 million instead of $3 million. If you had a massive uh, investment in civic engagement in all of the faith organizations, if there's a staff person to get everybody out, if we really maximize, Texas is only 38% white at this point in time. And, you know. That's good, such a little known fact. Yes. I, I remember like double, triple checking that out for you when you wrote that in your manuscript, because I was like, wait a minute, is this number right? Exactly. <laughs> Majority of people in Texas are black and Latino. I can't believe it. 
But that's not how our politics flows. And so that's what I'm trying to, I want people to see. And that that's the, and it's really to follow the example of Georgia, right? When we talked, you think before on this podcast or whatnot, we met Stacey 10 years ago. And Stacey said at that point in time, she said, we lose in Georgia by 200,000 votes. There's a million and a half people of color who don't vote. I'm going to go get them registered to vote. And she set about doing that over the course of a decade. And then we ousted Trump, and then we flipped the whole Senate because of that work. That can play itself out if we are smart and invest at, and it could happen faster if we move the amount of resources. And so I'm trying to affect conventional wisdom around strategy. What are the places and the people we should be backing? What does leadership look like and not look like? And so those are some of the outcomes that I'm hoping for. I've now worked with you on two books. I've been just from the beginning so incredibly impressed and sort of it's to me is mind-boggling how you're just you're so focused on these projects and you're so disciplined and you just crank it out and I have to laugh because in the beginning of both the first book and this current book you would say well I don't I wonder how many pages I can get out and kind of a little (laughs) nervous like do I have enough to say this book by the way for everybody it's over 300 pages it's very readable but he you know you got so much um, you pack it in. I wanted to ask you, what's your process like from beginning from a blank page to writing a first draft and then like getting it down to a manuscript? I, I you know, in 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 short, like can you? Uh, I'm as a writer myself who has still not written a, my own book. I have book projects, but I find it. Um, I'm just you know kind of like wanted to get a little insight to your your process. Well, this fear of the blank page piece is profound. I would live in terror of the blank page. And I thought I had a conversation with some of my, another um, writing buddy friend of mine, Jennifer Posner in New York about this and that she very much takes the time to go through. So there's a, the, the writer, um, Anne Lamott, has this book, Bird by Bird. And I um, love that book. Yes. And so, but she has this concept, which she calls the shitty first draft and that just get something done and then you can go back and edit it and improve it. And just getting that first draft done is psychologically, emotionally relieving to me. So when I do these drafts, I use the writing software Scrivener because it can, it can divide your screen. And so I can have notes on one side and the, and I can do the text on the other. Mm. And then just getting it down it really relieves my stress. Like, okay, now I have something to actually work with here. And so it's not just this blank page piece. And so then you go around and around. And then and and then sometimes you're in the process of writing a book where you have an editor, where you send a draft to a, your book coach and editor, and they send you back, which I did not know until this book, <laughs> that they have, Microsoft Word has this, has this feature where it tells you the number of edits. And you open up it, it says 300 edits were actually made. <laughs> By Charlene Chang on the chapters. It's a little bit of a, a of a, a disease, but I I'd like to think that it's a sorry not sorry situation. Yes, no, it is, there's definitely a in terms of the quality of the product. It is a valuable contribution in terms of the emotions in the moment. That's a whole other issue, but we are still here together eight years later. So. Yes, thank thank you, thank you for putting up with what I call my my red pen, even though it shows up probably a, you know. I don't know, yellow highlights in track changes. (laughs) Speaking about the book process, you know, what has it been like? Uh, I know you've talked about, you often felt this 
uh, especially with this book project, I think that this spiritual connection you have felt with the authors and books that you had surrounded yourself with while you were writing, that you were delving into while you were writing, just wondering what that journey was like to get to this point with having absorbed so much writing as a lot of them, other, other black writers from the past and present. And who were some of the key writers that inspired you for this book project in particular? Yeah, no, I've always, writing has always been a thing for me and in my life. So my uncle Rinzi was a journalist and he, I just like to get the details of the story, but he was a reporter, one of the first black reporters to cover the White House back in the 50s. I believe it was the Washington Star paper. Then he went and formed his own paper. He formed a, 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 a black paper, Amsterdam News, quickly on that story. And so back to the thing about my process, I, at one point I storyboarded out and kind of took um, index cards around, okay, you should tell this in this chapter. And I had, and I put them on this piece of cardboard. And then I turned I love, this card- I love it, by the way. It's so yes. analog. Well, yes. <laughs> then I turned the cardboard over. And what it was, I had forgotten I had this. It was the actual newspaper that my uncle had created, the Amsterdam News, in terms of that he had laid it out. And so I actually still oh had God. that. Isn't and then I was laying, laying, you know, writing my book out this way, in this way. Talk about the ancestors talking to us. Huh? Seriously, it was a very deeply, that was very, very powerful. And then, you know, I was an English major and African-American studies major at Stanford. And the, I was very much into books and writers. And so I have a lot of books. And so I have hundreds of books in that because it was pandemic and I wasn't at Phil's and I was in my attic, I was surrounded by all of these books and all of these writers in general. And so there was a point in this book, part of it originally, I was kind of like, this information is not there. People need to know who's doing the work. Let me just get it out there. And that's the most important thing. And then somewhat similar with Brown is the new way, right? I reached a point where I was like, yes, the content needs to get out there, but I'm also going to try to make it as good as possible. Mm. which is another level of energy, effort, and time, frankly, in terms of being able to move the thing forward. And apologies to the new press for missing the, the, the original deadlines. And so in that process, and this is back to thinking about stories, the one of the, probably the best thing I've ever read in terms of compelling stories is Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. And she just mm. has these amazing, amazing metaphors that illuminate the, I won't even try to capture them here, but I really commend that. And so I, whenever I need to get inspired, I would read some of cast. And then I would go say, okay, well, can I try to do my attempt to tell this story about, you know, the anthrax being released in the Antarctica and how that's equivalent mm-hmm. to what Trump has unleashed in this country. And so talk about her experience with the plumber who came to her house and draws this larger, this white guy, and they found this connection point. So that just being, I felt like in relationship with Isabel Wilkerson. And then the other th- very moving experience for me was June Jordan is one of my two favorite writers of all time. June Jordan and, and James Baldwin are my two favorite writers. And I have a niece, Leah, who is at Barnard. And I had forgotten that June had written this essay called Notes of a Barnard Dropout. And so I ordered this book of that had her essays and I sent a copy to Leah with you know in, inscription about this was very impo- impactful to me etc and the other thing about it because you mentioned the top columnist of the Guardian I've also written New York Times etc and I've had these issues around identity and the, my platform big enough etc etc June wrote for the progressive magazine which was not very well known at all 
but she wrote amazing work. And so that was part of my thing. I was like, well, let me just try to do work as good as possible. And then maybe 30 years from now, somebody will send my work to their niece or nephew the way that I did to mine. And so that was a part of that, I don't know, passing the baton or historical context. I love it. Okay, so before we wrap up, I definitely want to let people know how to get the book. So can you tell us when can people buy the book and how can they buy the book? So book is out October 18th and people can order now. And actually some people who have pre-ordered are actually getting the book and actually putting uh, it's arriving uh, before them. But so people should order it and we are asking people to, you know, get it. Think about are any friends or families or coworkers who might be interested in the book. It'd be helpful to be able to get, you know, copies for them. And I know that we've been down this road before in terms of how to become a bestseller in terms of like, how do you kind of coordinate and organize and channel all the energy and support networks that you have? And then that whole process is actually recorded by the numbers of books sold leading up to and during your launch week. And they look at all the different outlets where it actually comes from. So what actually would be most helpful for us, for listeners of this podcast, is for people to go to Amazon and buy the book. And so I know a lot of people sometimes feel like Amazon doesn't have good morals. I actually spent like 10 minutes looking at Barnes and Noble to see where they like a more virtuous company and whatnot, and they actually aren't in terms of who actually controls them. And so we are doing a lot of buying from independent bookstores, and we are trying to spread this around. But Amazon actually, just in terms of the bestseller formulas, frankly, is a key part of this. We need to have people buying books from them. So that would be very helpful if people could do that and it's for a, for a good cause. So you can just find it on Amazon, How We Win the Civil War, and we'll have a link in the show notes um, around that. And um, we would deeply appreciate. And I think the other thing about the, you know, this isn't, I didn't spend two years of my life doing this just so that I could have another book and just so that I could be, you know, whatever, get interviews or whatnot. I want well, I wanted this country to be more just an equal place. And so I'm trying to tell that story and I'm trying to lift up the lessons and leaders who are not respected and not sufficiently respected for us to win. And so I do feel that the success of this book will help to impact U.S. politics by elevating the prominence and the uh, significance and the credibility of the people in it. And that that will hopefully impact strategy and spending and the political direction of our movement. So that's why we really uh, need everybody to do what they can in terms of buying it, getting their friends and family to buy it, buying it for friends and family, etc. And that's it. You heard it, folks. Go to Amazon, pre-order the book. We appreciate you all so much. Help make it a New York Times bestseller so that those who are in decision-making positions would really pay attention and notice. Uh, and Steve, before we wrap up, I know, you know, we do a lot of, you and I do a lot of like ribbing each other and joking around a lot of times on this podcast, but I wanted to take this opportunity to just let you know how much I deeply appreciate you, A, for inviting me on this journey. I tell people all the time, it's like sliding doors, that meeting at Imperial Tea Court when you decided to trust me and take me on as your book coach and book editor, it changed my life. I have had an amazing journey and experience in and I've learned so much from you and have had the chance to work with amazing people from the, t the, the incredible teams that you've formed, um, namely the Democracy in Color team, and to be on this podcast with you. And so I just continue to have 
so much gratitude and appreciation. And I've had a front row seat to watching you grow exponentially as both a writer and national political thought leader. It's been an immense privilege. And I am looking forward to continuing on the journey. And here we are about to launch, uh, you know, another book. Uh, so thank you so much. It's, you've, it's meant so much to me. And also you and Susan have just been so inspiring to me as a human on this planet. Well, I, I, I appreciate that, John. I do want to say that, you know, for all the joking that I do that about your process and your uh, uh, level of focus, that I absolutely believe that the quality of the products that we have put out into the world are immensely better because of your contribution and your partnership. And so I'm deeply grateful for that. And I do want to just also take the moment to thank the other people on our team that I've really been blessed to have an amazing team of people who play critical roles in all parts of this, one just kind of putting up with me, but also lending their talents. So the whole Democracy in Color team, um, you know, Olivia Parker, Polo Anifade, Amy Gusakuma, Taylor Phillips Center, and people, Julie Martinez-Ortega, which heard, you know, data chops and expertise have all been critical and instrumental to being the success, I, you know, an impact being able to have, period. But also I think in terms of the of this book is uh, well, and hopefully it's it's success because everybody has, has pitched into that whole process. And I want to also, I think just, maybe this is the wrapping piece of, you know, I, I mentioned in terms of Susan's contribution to the book itself in terms of telling the stories and that it's, and I, I do dedicate, you know, the book to her. And I just want to, I guess, reflect back to people in terms of the, the significance and importance and what this means. So, you know, some people know, like it may have referenced, you know, Susan is a you know cancer survivor. October 11th will be six years and one month. But it's obviously, it's a journey that has ups and downs. And all of us have to grapple with this question about legacy and impact and meaning of life. And then cancer actually, you know, accelerates that conversation and makes it more front, uh, front of uh, mind. So that was part of some level of the urgency. And I really feel like the book is, also part of the legacy both for me and for Susan. And something I didn't even realize until finishing the book is that it's also an illustration of Susan's philanthropic genius. Susan was Stacey's, uh, Abrams' first donor. Susan was the first donor to this Alliance San Diego work and has really had the instinct and the commitment as a um, white person with resources to back the right people. And the results have, tra- have played, played themselves out in ways I've tried to capture in the book. That's also part of this. And I just wanted to say that out loud in terms of legacy and impact, just, you know, thanking and, um, you know, saluting her for her, her role in all of this. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Susan. And as Steve likes to say, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Everybody, again, be on the lookout for the final episode of our special How We Win series, which will be recorded live and hosted by my fellow Jerseyan, Steve's good friend, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please do take a moment and leave us a rating and comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from FOLA Onifade and April Elkir, recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Keep the faith. <laughs>